Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you again. I mean, of all the choices that you had this weekend, you could have been at Glastonbury, you'd have taken the day off from Wimbledon, or you could be at Silverstone, but no, you chose to be here at Abbey. Oh, I am impressed. <laughs> well, you've been looking uh, here at Abbey over the past number of weeks at these letters, postcards really, that we have in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, and I hope you found them useful. And uh, we're looking at the last but one, so you're on the home straight here, you're not looking at the last one next week, so Phil, you've got a week off, is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, but the last but one, this letter to the church at Philadelphia, and so if you've still got your Bibles uh, with you, it might be good to open um, uh, page 1, 2, 3, 5 in the church edition of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3 and uh, verse 7 is this letter that the Lord asked John to write down and send to this church at Philadelphia. Um, I guess many of us have been involved in those icebreaker games that you often have when you are perhaps in a team building situation or meeting people for the first time and you go around and you're asked that if you were a car what sort of car would you be if you're an animal what sort of animal would you be Arr, be a mouse um, let's just change that slightly think of the church here at Abbey and think back perhaps those of you who've been here in recent weeks and the uh, letters and the churches that have been described in the letters that you've been looking at over the past few weeks if you were to describe Abbey um, by one of these letters, one of these postcards, which one would best describe Abbey? Well, you'd probably say, well, it's a little bit of this and uh, a little bit of that, yes? Um, but which one would you want to be? Which one? You're pointing, Chris is pointing this one here. And I would agree with you, because five of the seven letters that we have in the first couple of chapters of, of Revelation, five of them, there are, are buts, <laughs> there are neverthelesses, there are, ah. Uh, uh, you'll notice, I mean, if you just look at um, chapter 2 and verse 4, you've got in the first couple of verses a description of the church there at Ephesus, and then in verse 4, yet I hold this against you. And then in verse 14 of uh, chapter 2 with the church at um, Pergamum, uh, again, describe what they're like. Then in verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Chapter 2 and verse 20, the church at Thyatira, again, describe what they're like. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Chapter 3 and verse 2, the church at Sardis, wake up, strengthen what remains. You're about to die. I've not found your D's complete. And then the church that you're looking at next time, Laodicea, chapter 3 and verse 17. Yet you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, sugarcoat it, Jesus, you know. So. <laughs> um, but there are two churches that uh, buck that trend. One is the church at Smyrna, where it seems to be all positive, but I wouldn't want to be Smyrna because it says in verse 10 that they're going to go through a time of suffering, and I don't want suffering, all right? So I wouldn't want to be Smyrna. But when it comes to the church here at Philadelphia, 
there doesn't appear to be a negative word said. And the trouble that is going to come on all the world, they're going to be protected from it. Hey, I like that. So, if I want to belong to any church, if I want to be described by any church, it would be this one here at Philadelphia. Um, they certainly weren't problem-free, as we'll see in a few moments' time. But they were one, and I think this is significant, they were one with whom the Lord was happy to identify with by his name. Have you ever been asked to provide a reference for someone? Um, I guess because of the sort of position I have in my home church, often I'm asked to do a reference, either a written one or a verbal one. And if, if you like the person, you can commend the person, that's okay, isn't it? But if the reference is sort of, um, if you can get this person to work for you, you'll be very fortunate. Um, <laughs> then it's a bit harder. You don't like to associate yourself sometimes with, with certain sorts of people. But here, this church at Philadelphia, the Lord was happy to identify with it and to have his name identified with it. Do you see those? Uh, that reference in verses 12? Let me read it to you. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. I don't mind having my name associated with this church. Now, actually, this letter has just broadened out slightly in those verses. And Jesus is looking forward to the time when, as we've just been singing, the earth will be filled with his glory. And he's talking there about the bigger church. But in the context just here, he's actually saying, the church at Philadelphia, you are a glimpse of that. You are an example of what will be. And I don't mind having my name associated with you. That's a heck of a commendation, isn't it? I mean, of course, every genuine church of Jesus Christ um, can take the name of Jesus. Whether it's in the title or not, it, it doesn't matter. You know, we are here in the name of Jesus Christ. But oh, oh, to belong to a congregation of God's people where he is happy have his name identified with it. And they can truly bear the name of Jesus. And that's why I'd like to be part of a church like the church here at Philadelphia, associated with the name of Jesus. Now, I guess you have discovered in your studies in recent weeks how some of this works. There's a, a lot of uh, books been written and um, the scholars will uh, argue over how we interpret these letters these days. Uh, some have said that these letters can be um, parallel to certain times in church history. And so there's that sort of historical flow as you go through the letters. Some say, well, uh, like I mentioned a few moments ago, that you can sort of pick and choose. Well, that describes what our particular congregation is like now, and that we're a little bit of that as well. But of course it's evident that the Lord was writing to specific congregations, a group of people who were meeting in these towns. And for us to fully understand what the Lord is saying, then we need to understand some of the local conditions, the environment in which they were meeting, the geography of the city where the church was, a little bit of the history. Because what Jesus does on a number of occasions, he draws parallels 
between those local specific real conditions that the people were experiencing and he draws out a spiritual parallel. says it's a little bit like this. You'll see it um, when you look at the church at Laodicea. Those of you who know uh, anything about the, the church at Laodicea, one of the criticisms that the Lord has of them is that they were neither on fire for him, neither were they against him. They were neither hot nor cold. They were lukewarm. And the parallel there is that actually running through the center of Laodicea was this water course that was lukewarm. It wasn't hot enough to heal people. You know that in places like Bath and my hometown, Royal Leamington Spa, there are waters that people go to for healing. But it wasn't good enough for that. But neither was it cool enough to refresh you. It was lukewarm. In fact, some of the commentators say the only use for the water in Laodicea was for enemas. Hmm. (laughs) Well, perhaps that does have a use, but a bit of a strange use. Um, But Jesus uses that thing that was there, physical, real, that they understood, and he drew a parallel to their passion for the Lord that was a bit lukewarm. It was neither one thing or the other. And so the Lord does that time and time again with these letters, and he does it here with the church at Philadelphia. Things that they would have understood because they lived there, and says, ah, this, this is what it's like. So what do we have here in these verses that would have been perfectly understandable to those who lived in the town of Philadelphia? And I know that's an American sign that we've got there. If not that Philadelphia, this is one in Asia Minor. Um, What does the Lord bring out? Well, let's have a look, first of all, at verses 7 and 8. Let me read them to you again. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, since I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. What's going on here? seems to be issues to do with access. We have the mention of a key. We have doors being open and shut. What is Jesus saying to this church, and what do they understand by what he is saying? Well, you need to understand where Philadelphia was. Philadelphia was seen to be um, a gateway city. If you look at its geography, it was situated in a certain place in a valley that if you wanted to come from the plains to do business at the coast, you had to go through Philadelphia. If you wanted to go from the coast up into the plains where the main population was, you had to go through Philadelphia. So for business and commerce, they were the gatekeepers. If you wanted to do business, well, it had to come through us. And we say yes or no. We can shut the door. You understand the picture that's going on there. In other words, we hold the keys to wealth, to prosperity to power, okay? The other thing that we need to understand about Philadelphia, and this is what one of the commentators says, the word that's used is that Philadelphia was remarkable for temples and its religious festivals. Now, if you know anything about Roman history in the world in first century uh, Asia Minor, um, pretty well every Roman city had plenty of places of worship. It was truly a multi-faith society. So to call Philadelphia remarkable in that sense knows what it can t- tell us a bit of what it was like, probably because it was the center of commerce, had so many people from dis- different nationalities going through it. It was remarkable for its places of worship and its religious festivals. So that's the geography. That's the culture of this place. So can you just imagine 
how this small, fledgling group of Christians felt in that world. We're in the minority. We're on the margins. We're powerless. We haven't got any influence in this place. I just wonder if some of us are perhaps feeling, well, that's what I feel like a little bit. Um, And we have still got, to a degree, the backing of the status quo uh, in our parliament. Prayers are still made. There is still a state religion, which is Christianity. And we feel under siege sometimes, don't we? Just think how the Philadelphians felt with all that was going on around them, with these displays of wealth and prosperity and multiculturalism. They felt in the minority. They felt under siege. And so what does Jesus say to this small group of his people? He says, you may have little influence. You may have little strength, but don't worry because I'm in control. I've got the key, really. You might think big business has got the key. No, I've got the key. I'm the gatekeeper. I'm the one who says what goes on and what does not go on. This reference to a key here, uh, verse 7, the one who holds the key of David. There's been a reference to a key earlier on in the book of Revelation where John first sees Jesus, and Jesus says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. I don't think it's referring to those particular keys. There's another historical reference here that the Jews in the church would understand. It goes right back to the Old Testament. It goes back to King David. And King David had a chancellor who was called Eliakim. And Eliakim held the key to the treasury, David's key. All the wealth of the nation was in this man's hands. And Jesus is saying, I am the one that holds the key to true wealth. Not the wealth that you see displayed in your city day by day, week by week. But true wealth, I'm the one that holds the key to that. So do you see the point that Jesus is making here to his people? You may feel powerless, you may feel poor, but don't worry. I've got control and through me you will have genuine wealth. What you have received through me, forgiveness, Access to God, a future in heaven one day. Those are things that have real, real worth. Well, do I need to apply that to us? Sisters, brothers, do you sometimes feel under siege when you see the way that our society is going? Do you feel that you're in the minority, that you're being pushed to the margins? Well, lift up your heads, take strength, realize who it is who has the real power the one who really holds the key to what is valuable and the wealth that we have through Jesus. So we have access issues. But then in verses 9 to 11, we have this idea of being opposed and in a minority and surrounded and under attack. Let me read you those words again. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. The synagogue of Satan is mentioned there. It's mentioned before in um, the letter to Smyrna in chapter 2 and verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who so say they are Jews and are not, but, um, and are not, but are of 
uh, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, the works of Satan is, in fact, a common theme in these letters. I don't know if you've picked up on that. Chapter 2 and verse 13, the last part um, of verse 13. Uh, Let me read that to you where it says, You've not renounced your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Uh, The last part of verse 24 we have there, we have Satan's so-called deep secrets mentioned. Um, I know that we live in a, a church um, way of thinking these days where we've, we've succumbed to almost some form of evangelical um, political correctness where there are certain ideas and words that we don't like talking about too much. We don't talk about hell too much these days. And the work of Satan is something that we don't like talking about. It appears to me that Jesus was not constrained by such political correctness. He was happy to call a spade a spade. This is what's going on in your place. This is the work of Satan that is taking place here. And what was the particular thing that Satan was trying to do in Philadelphia? And I believe generally one of the works of Satan. Well, I think it's hinted at in verse 8. Because the Lord commends these people when he says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The heart of the matter for us as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church of Jesus Christ, is this. Jesus is Lord. Yeah? Jesus is Lord. Um, at our church at, uh, in, in Warwick, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And the question that seems to be on literally everybody's lips when they have an encounter with Jesus is, who is this? Who is this? It's asked time and time again. And gradually, as you read through Mark, the pennies seem to drop for various people, for the followers of Jesus and for others as well. Except there is one group who, for whom they see straight away who it is. Um, The disciples had just been on a boat that uh, was about to sink and Jesus had calmed the storm and they asked the question, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Then they landed near a particular town and there was a man who was full of demons. His name was Legion. And when this man and the legions saw Jesus, they said, we know who you are. Satan knew immediately who this was. Go away from us, they said. It was Jesus who caused fear in that situation, not the demons. And so the question was asked time and time again, who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Who are we dealing with? And eventually when Jesus challenges his own disciples, well, who do you say that I am? It's Peter, for whom the penny has fully dropped. He said, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. Now the identity of Jesus Christ Who is Jesus Christ is a question that is always challenged. It has been then, and it's been challenged down the centuries and down the millennia. Who are we dealing with here? Is Jesus just the founder of another religion? Is he comparable to Muhammad and Buddha and other great men and women of history? No. He is far superior to anyone. There is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And that is the name of Jesus. And Satan's ploy, Satan's attack, is to undermine that. 
undermine his name and bring him down. Oh, yes, yes, he's worthy, but he's not unique. He's not special. And the church at Philadelphia had held on to that truth and not denied the name of Jesus, the Son of the living God. And the battle then, and I believe our battle now, is in this area, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, one day your enemies will be proved wrong. And you notice where the attack came from. It did not come from the secular world. It came from the religious world. Those of the synagogue of Satan, those who call themselves Jews but are not. That's where this particular attack came from. And it appears as if the Philadelphian patience and endurance on this particular matter of holding fast to the name of Jesus will be rewarded with protection when the time of trial was to come. Now, this is not a universal promise because Smyrna were going to go through a time of trial. But for some reason, the Lord was going to protect the people here at Philadelphia because they held on to that truth and they did not deny the name of Jesus. So there were issues to do with access. There were issues to do with opposition. And then in verses 11 to 13, we have these matters of crowns and pillars. Let me read that to you again. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now this is back again to metaphors and images that the Philadelphian church would have understood. Now what do you, what do you understand? If I was to say to you a crown, what comes into your mind and what sort of ideas come into your mind? Well, I'll tell you what came into my mind. It was a couple of weeks ago. The Queen went back to uh, Westminster Abbey and they commemorated 60 years since the coronation. And they bought the crown from the Tower of London. It's been there for 60 years, hadn't been used, um, and it was placed there on the altar. Do you, do you remember that? And so in our culture, what does a crown symbolize? Well, it's authority, isn't it? It's rule. It's power. Now that is not what is understood here when crowns are used. In fact, crowns are used as a picture throughout the New Testament. But rarely does it mean authority and power and rule. This is the context in which crowns are generally used in the New Testament. I'll just read to you from 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. And Paul here is writing to a a group of Christians and asking them to carry on and he's using an athletics analogy. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets a prize? Run in such a way to get a prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Not to do with authority, to do with reward. Reward. That's what's being spoken about here. In fact, um, just an aside, you, you may, if you remember back to the um, Olympic Games in Athens, they reintroduced there, as well as the winners getting the medal, they were given a, a, a wreath, a crown, weren't they? Which harked back to the Grecian Games. In Corinth, the particular crown that was given to the winners of a race there was made of celery leaves. Imagine how long that lasted. Okay? It doesn't even last a meal. And that's the reward they got. They were running for a, a crown, a reward made of celery leaves. That's why Paul says, 
didn't last long. You're running for something much more valuable. Now, that is the crown that's being spoken about here. It's talking about faithfulness. And he's saying, listen, living faithfully, holding on to my name and the truth that you have discovered in Jesus Christ, it will be rewarded. Do you sometimes find the going tough? Are you thinking about going back to work tomorrow and thinking, oh, dear, it's a hard environment in which I operate? Well, hold on, because you will be rewarded for living faithfully in those difficult environments. God will reward you with something far more than a crown of celery leaves, something that is really worthwhile. And so that's what's being said to this church. Your faithfulness to me will be rewarded. And then there's this idea of pillars. You see that? Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now we perhaps understand that a little bit more. The picture sort of describes something that's solid and substantial. So we understand that metaphor. But something else that Philadelphia was famous for is that it um, had earthquakes on a regular basis. In fact, within living memory of this letter in AD 17, the whole city was completely flattened by an earthquake. And everybody had to live in tents for a while. Can you imagine that? what that did to the psyche of that city? With the aftershocks and the memories and the stories that went round. Nothing was substantial. Nothing was firm. Everything was temporary. So again, into that thinking, into that way of observing the world that just seemed so fragile, the Lord said, yeah, but listen, You have been brought into something that's solid, something that's real, that will stand the test of time. So when everything around seems like it's falling to pieces, I'm going to make you part of something that's going to be eternal and will last forever. Do do you remember that advert that the orange telecoms people used to use? The future is bright. The future is... Yeah, they've ditched that now. And in fact, they're not even called orange anymore. So much for that sort of future, okay? It's not that sort of future that Jesus is speaking about here. For you, there is something that is substantial. So again, sisters, brothers, if you feel, perhaps in your workplace, perhaps sometimes as God's people, we'll feel we're under attack and we think, oh, what is the world coming to? God is going to build us into something substantial that will not be moved. Therefore, take hope. Take hope. So here we have a church that the Lord commends. I'm happy to have my name associated with it. May Abby be known for that. And it wasn't a numbers thing. They weren't known by being a large congregation. They were small, I think. That's the inference here. They were small. There wasn't much to them at all. Little strength. But you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Let's endeavor to be like them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promises that are held out in your word, particularly when all around seems uh, against us and sometimes so temporary. But thank you that in you, in trusting in you, we have something
that is worthwhile, that is substantial, and that is eternal. Help us to hold on to this, we pray, in Christ's name, for his glory. Amen.